You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Dylan Thomas was born in 1914 and began his career as a journalist in his native Wales. He then moved to London, where he worked in broadcasting, wrote film scripts, prose, and drama to make enough money to enable him to write what he really wanted to write, poetry. He lived flamboyantly, even recklessly, until his untimely death in New York City in 1953. In 2004, we at Harper Audio began the effort of publishing a Dylan Thomas box set of his work and his reading, drawn from the impressive Cadman Audio Library. I had the distinct pleasure of being in charge of culling together the story of Cadman Audio, as told through liner notes to the various albums that Cadman released of Dylan Thomas's work. We then invited Billy Collins, Poet Laureate of the United States from 2001 to 2003, to read the Cadman history. Here now, for your listening pleasure, is Billy Collins and the great Dylan Thomas reading A Child's Christmas in Wales. Hello, I'm Billy Collins. The founders of Cadman, Barbara Cohen and Marianne Rooney, were deeply moved by Dylan Thomas's poetry, and after hearing him read at the Poetry Center in New York, resolved to have him record for them. Prior to one of Thomas's recitals, they sent a note backstage. Dear Mr. Thomas, the note read, We have been told that there is no admission to backstage, but that you will come out after the recital to greet the crowd. We are interested in discussing a recording and publishing project with you, but find the crowd a little impractical for this. Have you some suggestions as to how we could meet? They signed the note with their first initials only, fearful that the fact that they were female would disqualify them from serious consideration. Dylan Thomas wrote, it often seems, as much for the sound as the sense, and the sound must forever be his own, the round, roaring, golden roar of the roly-poly Welshman. Many years have passed since February 22, 1952, when Dylan Thomas first stepped before a microphone to record A Child's Christmas in Wales, which has become a classic among Christmas tales. The poetry he chose to read is quoted by tens of thousands who would not have recognized his name. Although this was the first record ever made by Thomas and by Cadman, and so worthy of solemnity, the choice of contents was a gay and haphazard affair. A date for the recording was set, and Thomas failed to show up. On the second time round, poems were discussed over rounds of beer and dropped in favor of puns and scandal and politics. But as time before the recording session grew short, thought of including a prose piece occurred to Dylan. There was a story, the name escaped him, which Harper's Bazaar had printed a while back, about Christmas in Wales. Could Barbara Cohen and Marianne Rooney get hold of it? The issue finally gotten hold of was the Bazaar's sole existing file copy, lent only upon the most solemn oath of return. But the choice of poems, though discussed over many a table, awaited last-minute inspiration. The recording day was Washington's birthday. Dylan, arriving late at New York's Steinway Hall, looked celestially calm, hailed everyone benignly, propelled himself vigorously to the concert hall stage, and discovered that he had forgotten his books. And on a holiday, 
Fortunately, the Gotham Bookmart was open to relieve the emergency, and while part of Cadman kept Dylan from fidgeting, the other part raced to Gotham and back again. During the interval, a few poems had been selected, and with hardly a pause or stutter, Dylan recorded these and A Child's Christmas in Wales. The record was finished, and it was good, and after one final playback as Philip, the whole easy, laughing group adjourned across the street to the anchor for something in the way of celebration. But no one, Dylan probably least of all, realized that in one afternoon he had given to the world the best of himself for all time. One Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the Seatown corner now. Out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep. That I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. All the Christmases rolled down towards the two-tongued sea, like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea, and out come Mrs. Prothero and the firemen. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden, waiting for cats with her son, Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, as white as Lapland, although there were no reindeers. But there were cats. Patient, cold, and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskered, spitting and snarling, they would slide and sidle over the white back garden walls, and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasined trappers from Hudson Bay off Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden, or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. Fire, cried Mrs. Prothero, and she beat the dinner gong. And we ran down the garden with the snowballs in our arms towards the house, and smoke indeed was pouring out of the dining room, and the gong was bombolating, and Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats in Wales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house laden with snowballs and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning, all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero, who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face. But he was standing in the middle of the room saying, A fine Christmas, and smacking at the smoke with a slipper. Call the fire brigade, cried Mrs. Prothero as she beat the gong. They won't be here, said Mr. Prothero. It's Christmas. 
There was no fire to be seen, only clouds of smoke, and Mr. Prothero standing in the middle of them, waving his slipper as though he were conducting. Do something, he said, and we threw all our snowballs into the smoke. I think we missed Mr. Prothero and ran out of the house to the telephone box. Let's call the police as well, Jim said, and the ambulance. And Ernie Jenkins, he likes fires. But we only called the fire brigade, and soon the fire engine came, and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house, and Mr. Prothero got out just in time before they turned it on. Nobody could have had a noisier Christmas Eve. And when the fireman turned off the hose and was standing in the wet, smoky room, Jim's aunt, Miss Prothero, came downstairs and peered in at them. Jim and I waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them. She said the right thing, always. She looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets, standing among the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs, and she said, Would you like anything to read? Years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the colour of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlours, and we chased with the jawbones of deacons the English and the bears, before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess-faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, It snowed last year, too. I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down, and I knocked my brother down, and then we had tea. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky. It came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss. Minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white, torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then, too? With sprinkling eyes and wind-cherried noses on spread, frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, 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 in the bat-black snow-white belfries tugged by bishops and stalks. And they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. 
And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents, and then the presents after the Christmas box. And the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithered run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his ice-boned boots like a man on fishmonger's slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God he was gone. Get back to the presents. There were the useful presents, engulfing mufflers of the old coach days, and mittens made for giant sloths. Zebra scarves of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-of-war down to the galoshes. Blinding tam-o'-shanters like patchwork tea cozies and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes. From aunts who always wore wool next to the skin, there were moustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the aunts had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nosebag from an aunt now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And pictureless books in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles's pond and did and drowned. And books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. Go on to the useless presents. Bags of moist and many-coloured jelly babies and a folded flag and a false nose and a tram conductor's cap and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell, never a catapult. Once, by a mistake that no one could explain, a little hatchet. And a celluloid duck that made, when you pressed it, a most unduck-like sound, a mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow and a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the sea, and the animals any color I please, and still the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow-billed and pea-green birds. Hard-boiled, toffee, fudge, and all sorts, crunches, cracknel, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan, and butter Welsh for the Welsh and troops of bright tin soldiers who, if they could not fight, could always run, and snakes and families and happy ladders and easy hobby games for little engineers, complete with instructions, oh, easy for Leonardo, and a whistle to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick, to shake our picture off the wall, and a packet of cigarettes, you put one in your mouth and you stood at the corner of the street and you waited for hours in vain for an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette and then with a smirk you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles like in our house? There are always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. And on Christmas mornings, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scour the swathed town for the news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the post office or the white, deserted swings. Perhaps a robin, all but one of his fires out. 
Men and women wading, scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-busked cheeks, all albinos, huddled their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all the front parlours. There was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackers by the dessert spoons. And cats in their furabouts watched the fires. And the high-heaped fires spat, all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers. Some few large men sat in the front parlours without their collars, uncles almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion. And some few small aunts, not wanted in the kitchen, nor anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, Poised and brittle, afraid to break, like faded cups and saucers. Not many those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man, always fawn-bowlered, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green, and back as he would take it wet or fire on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats and wind-blown scarves, would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. Then I would be slap-dashing home, the gravy smell of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mince coiling up to my nostrils, when out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy the spit of myself with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfinch, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound, and would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas, when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips, and blew so stridently, so high, so exquisitely loud, that gobbling faces their cheek bulged with goose would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street. For dinner we had turkey and blazing pudding, and after dinner the uncles sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large, moist hands over their watch chains, groaned a little, and slept. Mothers, aunts and sisters scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. Aunt Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dursey had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah, who liked pot, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big-bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and then when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man-o'-war following the instructions for little engineers and produce what might be mistaken for a sea-going tramcar. 
Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill, to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge, deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think they've been hippos. What would you do if I saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this, bang! I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill, and then I'd tickle him under the ear and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing, he hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow towards us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write, Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn. Or we walked on the white shore. Can the fishes see it snowing? The silent, one-clouded heavens drifted onto the sea. Now we were snow-blind travelers lost on the north hills, and vast dew-lapped dogs with flasks round their necks ambled and shambled up to us, baying excelsior. We returned home through the poor streets, where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow, and cat called after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of ships out in the whirling bay. And then at tea, the recovered uncles would be jolly, and the ice cake loomed in the center of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum, because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now, that we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. Ghosts wooed like owls in the long nights, when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once, when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying street. At the end of a long road was a drive that led to a large house, and we stumbled up the darkness of the drive that night, each one of us afraid, each one holding a stone in his hand, in case, and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises as of old and unpleasant and maybe web-footed men wheezing in caves. We reached the black bulk of the house, what shall we give them? Hark the herald? No, Jack said. Good King Winslas, I'll count three. One, two, three. And we began to sing, our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow-felted darkness round the house that was occupied by nobody we knew. We stood close together near the dark door. Good King Winslas last looked out on the feast of Stephen. And then a small, dry voice, like the voice of someone who has not spoken for a long time, joined our singing. A small, dry, eggshell voice from the other side of the door. A small, dry voice through the keyhole. And when we stopped running, we were outside our house. The front room was lovely. Balloons floated under the hot water bottle, gulping gas. Everything was good again and shone over the town. Perhaps it was a ghost, Jim said. Perhaps it was Trolls, Dan said, who was always reading. Let's go in and see if there's any jelly left, Jack said. And we did that. 
Always on Christmas night there was music. An uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang Cherry Ripe, and another uncle sang Drake's Drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got onto the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest. And then everybody laughed again, and then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill, and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. Thank you for listening. The Dylan Thomas Audio Collection is available on CD. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page, Harper Audio Presents. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. <laughs>